Good morning, everyone. I didn't realize there was going to be a slide, so I don't need to tell you who I am, apparently. My name is Rusty Hawkins. Um, and it, in addition to being a professor of history here and associate director of the Honors College, I also have the distinct and unique privilege to be the coordinator of the annual Luther Lee Lecture that we host every year here at Indiana Wesleyan University, which means I get the honor of introducing today's speaker. But before we, I do that, I need to attend to a couple of housekeeping items before we get started and bring up our speaker. Um, the first is to uh, just to say that today in chapel, this is not actually the Luther Lee Lecture. We're going to be hearing from our Luther Lee Lecturer today, but the Luther Lee Lecture itself will be taking place tonight at 7 o'clock p.m. across the parking lot in College Wesleyan Church's sanctuary, and I hope that you will all come out uh, to hear our lecture tonight at 7 p.m. at College Wesleyan Church. Second, I just want to say, give you a heads up that Wednesday's chapel will be a direct follow-up to today's chapel. So everything that's happening today in chapel will have another part of it on Wednesday. And just to get you kind of interested in that, Wednesday's chapel is going to be something that we've never done before in the history of Indiana Wesleyan University. It's going to be utterly unique. We've got special permission from Dr. Bray to do something new. So I hope that you'll come and uh, listen attentively today so that you'll be prepared for chapel on Wednesday. Don't miss that. Third, I just wanted to say a few short words about who Luther Lee was and why we have a lecture series named after him. Luther Lee was one of the individuals that left the Methodist Episcopal Church in the 1840s to establish the Wesleyan denomination of which our university today is a part. These early Wesleyans, much like the holiness movement from which they emerged, were animated and motivated in no small part by questions of social justice. Specifically, these Wesleyans, like Luther Lee, were adamantly opposed to the existence of racial slavery in the United States and worked for its eradication. They were steadfast in rejecting the adornments of riches and instead committed themselves to lives of simplicity to be in solidarity with the poor in their society. And they were ardent supporters of women's rights. In fact, the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, the very first conference on women's rights in the United States, took place in a Wesleyan church. And our lecture series namesake, Luther Lee, preached the ordination sermon for the very first woman to ever be ordained to preach in the United States, Antoinette Brown. John Wesley famously said, there is no holiness but social holiness. And these early founders of the Wesleyan church, men and women like Luther Lee, took this to heart and lived it out. The purpose then of the annual Luther Lee lecture is to turn our attention as Christians to issues of racial inequality or economic inequality or gender inequality and to ask how we might be agents of justice and reconciliation in the midst of these divisive issues. And I want to be clear about this. We give attention to the work of social justice because it's in our DNA as Wesleyans and quite frankly it's in our DNA as Christians to do so. This year's Luther Lee theme is on poverty and economic inequality, and I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to our 2017 Luther Lee lecturer. Dr. Matthew Desmond is the John L. Loeb Associate Professor of the Social Sciences and co-director of the Justice and Poverty Project at Harvard University. His primary teaching and research interests include urban sociology, poverty and race, poverty, race and ethnicity, organizations and work, social theory, and ethnography. In 2015, Matthew was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant for revealing the impact of housing evictions 
on the life of the urban poor and its role in perpetuating racial and economic inequality. Matthew's New York Times best-selling book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, which I believe is just out in paperback, draws on years of embedded field work and data that Matthew painstakingly gathered in the city of Milwaukee. Evicted won the National Books Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction, the John Kenneth Galbraith Award for Nonfiction, and the Barnes and Noble's Discover New Writers Award. It was named one of the top books of 2016 by nearly three dozen outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, Entertainment Weekly, Kirkus, the Boston Globes, and the Wall Street Journal, just to name a few. To sum it up, it's a really, really good book, and we're really, really excited that Dr. Desmond is here to talk to us more about it. Would you please join me in welcoming our 2017 Luther Lee Lecturer, Matthew Desmond. Thank you, Dr. Hawkins. Uh, what's up? How you doing? Oh, man. Um, I'm a preacher's kid. Any preacher's kids up here? So this is kind of a thing for me up here. Um, I, uh, I'm here just as me. I'm not a representative of Harvard right now or MacArthur. It's just me up here. Uh, but it's really beautiful to be with you today. And I just want to tell all you students in the room that, um, you know, you're loved and beautiful and affirmed. So um, this is Mrs. Midas. And Mrs. Midas was a, a neighbor of mine in a trailer park that I lived in in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, every day, Mrs. Midas would go out and she'd collect these cans along the side of the road. And uh, she'd uh, recycle them, take them back, and she'd use the money to help support her and her adult daughter, who had mental disabilities, uh, afford a little bit more food. Her scraping by. And, you know, we see a lot of folks like Mrs. Midas in our cities today, in the countryside today. And the question I kind of want us to consider is, you know, how should, how should we see them? You know, what should we think about poverty? What should be the Christian response uh, to poverty in America? So this is where we live. We live in the richest country on the planet, like by a mile. And so this is just GDP, you know, uh, stacked up by uh, the top producing countries in the world. And the United States economically reigns Colossus. So it's a little curious and weird that, you know, the richest country on the planet has, uh, among advanced industrial societies, the worst poverty. So if you look at child poverty rates by OECD countries like this, the only one that we're beating out is Romania. Romania has a worse poverty rate than we do, but that's it. There's no other country on the planet that matches our riches and our poverty. One in five of all American children live in poverty today. 43 million Americans live below the poverty line. So if, you, if they just like got together and started a country, they'd be bigger than Canada or Australia or Uganda. And, you know, when we say poverty, what we, we tend to, it's a word that we tend to use a lot, but what, what it means is that a family can't afford basic necessities. A family can't afford enough food or enough clothes or enough medical care to make it through the year. So what should we think about that as Christians? I want to just kind of start off by this really basic point is that like, I think we should think of poverty and economic inequality as things that are core 
to the Christian faith, core to God's heart. This is some passages from the early sections of Luke. And this is a passage where John the Baptist is out and he's baptizing and he's preaching and he's preparing the way for Jesus. And the folks come out and John's like, look, the ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So what should we do then? The crowd asks. And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share one with someone who doesn't have any. And anyone who has food should do the same. And even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more taxes than you were required to, he said. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. It's interesting, right? Like John the Baptist's first move, the fundamental move, it's not, a, it's not about prayer, not about scripture reading. All of us would think those are absolutely important. But it's about money. It's about poverty. If you got two shirts, give one away. If, you're, if your neighbor's hungry, share some of your food. Don't extort people. Don't exploit people. And in the same way, in the next uh, chapter of Luke, Jesus' first act of public ministry directly confronts these issues. So after his time in the desert, you know, Jesus goes to Nazareth, and he goes up to the uh, 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 synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled it. He found the passage where it's written. So Jesus picks this passage out. And the passage is, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, and recover sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's about the poor. He's about prisoners. He's about the oppressed. Jesus' focus is on the bottom. And usually when you teach or practice, it's the fundamentals that go first. And it's interesting to me that the fundamentals, according to the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus and John the Baptist lay out, are about poverty, are about wealth, are about exploitation. So I think that what we can take from this is that addressing poverty, caring about inequality in America, is not extracurricular the Christian faith. It's core. It's central. It was, it was maybe the reason why Jesus' birth was announced, not to the kings and rulers of the day, but to some poor, lonely shepherds pulling a third shift at night. It's primary. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, according to James, is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. All right, so I, I think the first move, I think the first thing, the first point I, I'd like to try to suggest to us today is that, you know, this is not something just for those of us that are like, you know, the social justice types. You know, if we call ourselves Christ followers, we all need to have a role to play in addressing this issue. So how should we see the poor? How should we look at someone like Mrs. Myers? So a lot of us today, when we see poor folks like this, when we see someone panhandling, when we see someone collecting cans, We've got a story about them. We've got an explanation for why they're doing what they're doing. And it kind of goes like this. It's, it's on them. They did something wrong. They're not working hard enough. They had babies outside of marriage. They are dependent on the state. They're addicted to drugs. That's an old story. And that's a story like you find in the Bible too. 
you know, and this kind of this kind of move, this kind of idea that we have about the poor, um, is something that some of the disciples had too. So this is a passage that comes from John that many of you are familiar with, where Jesus is walking by a healing pool. And as Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? How did he mess up? What did he do wrong? Is he not working hard enough? Jesus says, neither, this man nor his parents, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I think that it's, it's not Jesus' tendency to look at the poor and have an explanation for their poverty that pins their miseries on their own actions. That's not his first move. That's not usually his reaction. The disciples might react like that. Not him. And I think this is, a, this is a, an issue that confronts a lot of us, no matter what like, place in the economic order we came from. If we came from affluence or middle-class life, we might have not had a lot of connection with poor folks growing up. And we might have heard stories or have like this explanation for why there's so much poverty in America that's about the poor themselves. But I know a lot of us in the room didn't come from that place in America. I didn't. Money was pretty tight growing up as a preacher's kid in a small town. You know, sometimes our gas got shut off and our lights got shut off. And we who are from poverty, or at least from homes where money was tight, we could also have a tendency to, to blame the poor. I don't think anyone's harder on the poor than the poor themselves. You know, when I was living in the trailer park, there was one of my, and one of the reasons for that is like, people mess up. People do things. And, you know, it's easy to like care about poverty, but to care about like a poor person with a name and a history who does things, including mistakes, like all of us do, that's a little harder. So when I was living in the trailer park, one of my neighbors, her name was Lorraine. She was a grandma. She was spending over 70% of her income to rent a trailer in a trailer park. The city of Milwaukee literally considered an environmental biohazard. So one day, Lorraine, to celebrate an anniversary of her um, ex-husband's death, she took her food stamps, her entire allotment of food stamps, and she, she went to the grocery store and she bought um, lobster and king crabs and a lemon meringue pie and a Pepsi and spent her entire monthly allotment of food stamps on one meal and ate it alone. And when I heard about that, I was like, what are you doing? Like, I was so mad at Lorraine. I called my wife. I was like, it's like a Reagan commercial over here. I don't know how I'm going to write about this. But like, Lorraine didn't apologize for what she did. She didn't regret what she did. And she helped me kind of to think about, okay, it's not really my job to blame Lorraine. It's my job to understand why she would do what she did. But for someone like Lorraine, someone so far below stable poverty, someone in grinding poverty, no amount of penny-pinching or savings or good behavior would allow her to lift herself up to some sort of economic stability. If she, if she saved like a third of her income, which would be like enormous and like, you know, incredible for any of us to do, at the end of the year, she would have enough money to basically afford a bicycle. So if you're in a position like that, what do you do? Well, like maybe you live a little, you know? Maybe you pepper the suffering with color. Maybe you get cable TV. 
Like maybe you buy lobster on food stamps. This one guy once said, man cannot live by bread alone. And that's the same for poor people too. And so for Lorraine, she wasn't poor because she did things like that. She did things like buy lobster on food stamps because she was poor. And behavioral economics has a lot of literature and a lot of research to back this idea up. Poverty literally taxes the mind. We work, make worse decisions when we're stressed and thinking about things. And so I think that's one way to kind of approach someone like Mrs. Minus, not to jump to blame, not to uh, have an explanation at the ready, maybe to have a little bit of catch in our voice and ask questions that seek understanding instead of questions about blame. I do think God offers an explanation about why people are poor. And I think he offers an explanation, or God offers an explanation about how we might see this kind of situation in America. And it loops back to that original verse that Jesus started his public ministry from. And it's a verse that comes from Isaiah 61. You'll see Isaiah 61, it starts with the word that Jesus quoted, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has now anointed me to proclaim the good news for the poor. It goes on for a few verses. And then you get the why in this kind of section. Like, why is the good news announced to the poor and to the prisoners and the oppressed? And in verse 8, you kind of get it with this like resounding declaration from God where he says, before I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I hate it. Some translations say, I hate inequity. I think God hates poverty and he loves the poor. I think that the only time you see Jesus really furious is in that famous scene where he overturns the tables of the money changers, which is a scene not about business in religion getting mixed up. It's a scene about exploitation. It's a scene about people doing people wrong, exploiting the poor. Jesus is furious over that. God hates poverty. So I think that that gives us a little hint. That gives us a little insight, I think, into when we ask questions about why is there so much inequality in America, that it's to trigger something in us that makes us feel wrong, that makes us feel that this is not something that's justifiable. 55 years ago, there was a book written called The Other America. It was by a journalist called Michael Harrington. And it's famous for starting to launch the war on poverty, the rollout of amazing social programs um, that literally cut the poverty rate in half in America. And Harrington, toward the end of the book, has this, this line or this paragraph that I've come back to again and again through my work. And he says, what shall we tell the American poor once you've seen them? Shall we say that they are better off than the Indian poor, than the Russian poor? That's an answer, but it's heartless. I want to tell... Go, go. I want to tell every well-fed, 
optimistic American that it is intolerable that so many millions should be maimed in body and spirit when it is not necessary that they should be. My standard of comparison is not how much worse things could be or used to be, how much better they could be if only we were stirred. There is an enormous and unconsciousful amount of suffering in this land. And all this American suffering is shameful and unnecessary. And because it's unnecessary, there's hope. Many of these problems haven't always been with us. And powerful solutions are in our collective reach. We don't need to, like, rethink these problems. We don't need to design a way out of it. We need to hate them more. And we have to reach. And I think we all have a responsibility to do so. It's not on you guys. It's not a personal responsibility. It's a civic responsibility or a Christian responsibility. Personal responsibility has to do with your connection to the problem. You stole your roommate's iPad. You should give it back. Civic responsibility has to do with your connection to the solution. When the storm comes and the levee breaks and the flood comes rushing to your town, it's not the levee that has your name on it. It's the sandbag. So it's my hope that all of us, as the years pass, we come more and more to join God in hating poverty and hating it, and hating exploitation and injustice, and that we, in our own way, come to find a way to defend the rights of the oppressed and entwine our lives with the lives of the poor, experiencing the great problems of the world with our bodies and our souls. We're mandated to do it. It's not an extra thing. It's not a side plate. It's like meat and potatoes. And like all of Christian mandates, it's really an invitation to have life to the fullest. God doesn't just want us to give to charity. He wants us to genuinely wrap up our lives with the poor. And Luke, Jesus says, when you throw a party, invite the poor. And I think he wants us to do that as much for the poor as for us who are non-poor. You know, he's talking to the Pharisees here. In Luke 11, this is where Jesus is just snapping on him. Like, he's like, you guys are whitewashed tombs. And Jesus says, but for as what is inside of you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. It's interesting, right? It's like Jesus' uh, orientation here isn't just for the poor. It's for the Pharisees. It's for them. And it's not because he's making a works argument. It's not because charity is some magic token. It's because giving to the poor would expose them and exposes us, I think, to a deeper humanity and spirituality than often we're exposed to. He cares for the poor's hunger and their sickness, but he also cares for our own souls. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And he means that for those who are reduced to things because of poverty. And he means that for us 
who are shielded from certain things because we do not experience hunger and violence and sickness. Things that first appear as sacrifices can really be invitations to like the true Christian life. You can see farther in the valley than you can from the mountaintop. And it's harder, I think, it's much harder to experience deep faith and communion with God when our stomachs are always full and our streets are always safe. I remember this one time I was in Milwaukee and I was hanging out with Crystal and Vanetta. There are two homeless women. And we were at McDonald's. And uh, this boy walks in. And he was maybe nine or ten. And he had dirty clothes on. And it looked like someone had hit him in the face. And um, he didn't go up to order, like at the counter. He went around to the table looking for scraps. He was hungry. And so Crystal, who's 18 and homeless, turns to Vanetta, and she's like, uh, what you got? And these two women pulled their change, and they bought that boy lunch. And Crystal gave him this big hug and, uh, and sent him on his way. And she turned to Vanetta, and she said, uh, I wish I had me a home. You know, I would take him in. I thought that was just so beautiful. I thought that was so godly of her. And I think that moments like that remind us how powerfully and beautifully people refuse to be reduced to their hardships. And they expose us to like real faith and real generosity. Listen, are you breathing just a little and calling it a life? It's a line from a poet named Mary Oliver. And I think that when we don't wrap our lives up with the poor, when we don't have anyone in our cell phone who lives below the poverty line, when, when we're not in North Milwaukee or South Chicago or Northern India or Sub-Saharan Africa, we rob our lives of something too. I want to quote another Mary Oliver poem called Wild Geese. And I want to quote it because I know for some of us, this is like, just doesn't sound like us, you know? Like, we're just not that kind of person. And like, I don't want to be a social worker. And I don't, I don't really want to be a missionary. It just doesn't sound like me. And I just want to encourage us to like, turn that, turn that off and be more open about this. This is what Mary Oliver says. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. So I think for this problem, for this issue, it means we all have a role to play. The table's big. We need a lot of folks around it whether we come from poverty or abundance, whether we go into law or ministry or medicine or business and finance, public service or the academy or the arts, we can all do our part. From personal decisions, like where do we live? How do we spend our money? Do we send our kids to public schools? To decisions about who we vote for and what 
things we care about and what policies we rally around and mobilize around. I think we all have a role to play in this game. One last Mary Oliver poem. It's called For What I've Learned So Far. Can one be passionate about the just, the ideal, the sublime, the holy, and yet commit no labor to its cause? I don't think so. All summations have a beginning. All effect has a story. All kindness begins with its own seed. Thought buds toward radiance. The gospel of light is the crossroads of indolence or action. Be ignited or be gone. Dr. Hawkins has a few final announcements. Thank you so much for your time.